Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, we're going to take a look at China, how it is covered by journalists, what the challenges are, and how we go they go about that business of telling us what is happening in China, what are the hurdles, what are the problems, and what are the rewards of it. I'm going to ask co-host Adam Clayton Powell to make our first introduction. Thank you, uh, Mike Chinoy. You've been covering China for almost 50 years, since the 1970s, when you were in the CBS News Hong Kong Bureau. And uh, you were reporting mostly for radio then, but you became familiar a few years later when you joined CNN as London Bureau Chief, at first in 1983, and then you served as a Beijing Bureau Chief from 1987 until 1995. You covered Tiananmen Square. You won a, a award, including the DuPont, and Columbia, uh, DuPont Columbia and Peabody Awards. Uh, you then returned to Hong Kong as CNN bureau chief there for five years, winning more awards for your reporting from Indonesia and Taiwan. And then you based in Taiwan, serving as senior fellow, non-resident of the University of Southern California, US China Institute. You published three books, uh, China Live, uh, Meltdown, and now, Assignment China, which we're going to be discussing in some detail today. Well, Adam, uh, I'm glad to introduce David Lynch, an old colleague of mine who's had such jobs in journalism that other people only dream of. He's been a bureau chief in London. He's worked for Bloomberg, for the Financial Times, for USA Today, and in Beijing, he was the USA Today bureau chief very long time ago. David and I work together. It's nice to have him on the broadcast. David, what happens when you go to China? What's it like? Do you go in trepidation? And what are the challenges? Language, accommodation, um, talking to people. What are the challenges that you meet initially and which remain with you? Good question. And, you know, the answers have, have changed over time. I was based in China uh, from 02 to 05. Uh, and although there were Plenty of challenges in reporting there, including just physically uh, having the freedom to move about, uh, you know, get out of Beijing. Technically, you were supposed to get the permission uh, from the government. Uh, they had a local office just about every place all over the country called the Y-Ban. And you were supposed to ask their permission before you went in anywhere uh, in China. And of course, you know, you would fax in your request and, you know, days, weeks, months or years would pass without an answer. Uh, so the only way to go was just to pick up and go. And if the authorities decided that they didn't like what you were writing about when you got there, they could use your failure to get permission as an excuse to throw you out of town. Um, now, I think it's probably a lot harder than it was, frankly, uh, when I was there, because the government's taken a sort of U-turn on, uh, on opening up. Uh, but in terms of the benefits, it's just an extraordinary place to see, an extraordinary society changing, you know, so quickly uh, back in my day that, it, you know, it's really become a cliche to talk about uh, how fast China changes. Uh, and I was just back there a, a few months ago traveling with uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and, you know, you can see actual improvement. The sky that used to be the color of mud uh, for the week I was there was, you know, crystal clear. So it, it's a constantly changing, fascinating place. I should probably have said you now cover trade 
for the Washington Post. Mike, what was your first day like? You studied China before you went, I think, and had some preparation. I was very lucky because I was able to get to China in 1973 with a student group. It was just a year after the Nixon trip, and the country was still largely closed off to outsiders. I didn't go as a journalist, but I spent a month there. It was um, Chairman Mao's Cultural Revolution was still going on, uh, although the the chaos and and the violence that marked the late 1960s had subsided. Uh, so. I have this vantage point of having seen China under Mao and having then, as a journalist based uh, in Hong Kong uh, for eight years and then in Beijing for eight years, uh, been able to watch this remarkable transformation. And in my book, Assignment China, which is an oral history of American journalists in China based on over 100 interviews I did with people who've covered China for the American media from 1945 to the present day, what's fascinating is uh, the themes that that remain throughout all those decades, the central one being, as David mentioned, the endless battle that American and other foreign journalists have faced to try and penetrate the veil of secrecy that the and control that the Chinese Communist Party has imposed uh, in its attempt to control the narrative about China. And at various times over the years, conditions have eased. Uh, when David was there, it was just not that long before the Beijing Olympics and China was in this kind of opening up period. But under Xi Jinping in particular in recent years, it's gotten much, much more difficult. There have been mass expulsions of uh, many American journalists. And in many respects, while there are still some reporters on the ground, I think China as a beat is harder today than really at almost any time since uh, far American news organizations were allowed to open bureaus after the normalization of Sino-American ties in 1979. Mike, for your documentary and, and then for your book, you interviewed, as you said, more than 100 journalists who've covered China. Give us an idea of the scope and range of uh, all of those uh, men and women who uh, have, uh, against all odds sometimes, uh, made sense of uh, what's going on in China. Well, Assignment China starts with the reporters who covered the Chinese Civil War in the late 19. 40s, and when the communists triumphed in 1949, the American press corps, along with most of the other uh, international press corps, were forced to leave China. And for more than two decades after that, coverage of China was done uh, from outside the country, largely from Hong Kong. And the reporters who covered China were known as China Watchers. Uh, and it's a tremendous challenge because uh, you're you're not able to witness your, uh, yourself what's going on. You can't do the basic job of journalism, which is to see for yourself and report back what you've seen and uh, who you've spoken with and so on. Uh, instead, journalists had to develop a whole uh, kind of toolkit for watching China from outside. This involved scrutinizing the Chinese press, looking for clues for example, uh, in, in the order in which people were mentioned at a national day reception by the Soviet, held by the Soviet embassy could give you clues about who was up and who was down. You would interview uh, refugees. You would interview the odd business person or diplomat who would be coming through Hong Kong. And uh, it was very challenging. What was striking to me in the research I did for Assignment China was uh, 
that the reporters got more right than they got wrong, although they got plenty wrong under those circumstances. And one of the great ironies is after uh, the Nixon trip and after normalization, China opened up and uh, you had news bureaus that were allowed to be uh, uh, set up in Beijing. You had a large increase in the size of the American press corps uh, and the country became much more accessible. But now in an odd kind of way, it's gone full circle because of the expulsion of uh, nearly two dozen American uh, journalists in 2020 and the Chinese restrictions on visas and the difficult working conditions for the very few who are on the ground, you've got a kind of modern day version of China watching again from places like here in Taiwan, where I live, or from Seoul or from Washington, people again having to scrutinize the clues from outside because they can't get in. Um, going back, David, to your time now, which, uh, as Mike has just told us, was probably a fairly favorable time. How was your day? How did it begin? Uh, how did you, if we, a reporter in America would check other newspapers, uh, look at his inbox, see what had arrived, and start on decide what the story of the day was and cover that story. Uh, how did you handle that in Beijing? Did you... Uh, know what you were going to cover the next day or did you just wake up in the morning with a clean slate and say i wonder what's going on here now a little of both i i had the luxury of of a job that was pretty uh enterprise focused in other words i wasn't chasing the news of the day uh except in rare circumstances because at the time i was working for usa today and they had enough of an appetite for foreign news to have a handful of bureaus, but they didn't need or want sort of daily routine news coverage. So I would be working on some form of enterprise, more often than not, probably for our financial section, uh, which had the greatest appetite for those types of stories. And China at this point, six months uh, after having joined the WTO, was a great economic and financial story. Uh, for me, the challenge was trying to find uh, good ways to tell that uh, story in an interesting, accessible way for a mass audience. And, you know, the the, the specifics of my day, I, I would get up, hop in the car, uh, drive downtown. We lived out in one of the suburban developments near the international school because we had young children at the time. And I'd get down to my office in one of the diplomatic compounds down there in, on Chang'anjie, uh, right in the center of town and talk to my assistant about what he knew and what he was hearing and what he was reading. And then I'd dig into whatever story I was uh, on about at the time. To, to both of you, uh, uh, David, first, I guess, how do you cover an economic story in a country where the economic data are, well, let's just say they may not be entirely accurate? Yeah, that's a good question, because I was doing a story, working on a story just the other day and, and ran into uh, exactly that concern that uh, even today, China's uh, econ economic data uh, is questioned and financial analysts will use alternative indices that they develop themselves. They'll watch, uh, you know, metrics like rail tonnage or electricity consumption, and they'll extrapolate from that to get a, a broader understanding of the economy. Um, so it really boils down to just vacuuming up as much as you can find from as many people and places as you can find it. Um, and even, you know, to go back to the China watching point, you know, I can remember, you know, even in that 
fairly golden age of 02 to 05. Most of my days ended with me on the phone to some China expert back in the U.S. Uh, who could help me make sense of what I was seeing or what I was trying to understand. Uh, you know, academic experts uh, who had been studying China for obviously far longer than I had uh, and could put into some context whatever was going on at the time. Those people, of course, were easier to access uh, than, than local folks in, in a perverse way. I think a couple of other points worth worth noting, uh, in the, particularly in the 90s and, and sort of early mid 2000s, uh, the, the atmosphere in China uh, was very different uh, and much more open. And the, the Chinese wanted foreign investment. And so it was much easier to go somewhere, you could you could apply for permission to go somewhere by saying, we want to do a story about the investment climate in your city or the new special economic zone that you're attracting or the company that's building a factory. And that was a kind of story that officials wanted to have covered. And so uh, it was more accessible from that point of view. And also, particularly after China joined the WTO, I think the Chinese did uh, go through a period where uh, there were there were more documentation, there were more records available. It's interesting, for example, in 2012, which is already the beginning of the Xi Jinping era, there were two uh, bombshell stories that were produced, one by Michael Forsyth of Bloomberg News, about the hidden wealth accumulated by relatives of Xi Jinping, who was just about to become the top leader, and one by David Barboza of the New York Times about the hidden wealth of relatives of then Premier Wen Jiabao. Uh, and both of those stories relied heavily on corporate records that were available in China that are largely not available anymore. They've kind of cut back on that. But there was a period as China engaged internationally and as the market reforms were still quite strong, uh, where, where it was becoming to some degree a more quote unquote normal country. And that did provide tools for, for journalists to cover a part of the story that the a part of the society that the Chinese authorities wanted covered in general, which was the economy. Um, let me ask you, Mike, do you, did you get a sense of the culture or did you get a sense of being separate from it? Uh, and how much of an impediment is language if you don't speak Chinese? Well, you're living in 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 the uh, capital of Chinese culture, and so you're you're around it all the time. And of course, trying to understand the culture and write about it, cover it was was for certainly in my experience a, a very important and interesting uh, part of the beat. Uh, I think knowing Chinese obviously helps because uh, one, one, even knowing Chinese uh, foreign journalists are very dependent on their local staff. You, you, you have a translator, you have sort of local fixers. Uh, and uh, even if your Chinese is very good, they know the system and uh, they can make phone calls where people won't hang up because it's obviously a foreigner, no matter how good your Chinese is. I was at the other end of the spectrum. I, uh, I found out I was going to Beijing about 60 days before I went. And uh, I remember saying that I was had just was just wrapping up a year of, of a fellowship up at uh, the Neiman program at, at Harvard uh, and had spent the year, you know, drinking coffee at the beginning of the day and drinking beer at the end of the day. And when my boss said, hey, instead of Hong Kong, we, we want to send you to Beijing, would, would you do that? And I said, well, 
sure, I'd love to, but, you know, I could have been spending the last nine months studying Mandarin. Uh, and my boss at the time said, well, can't you just pick that up in your spare time? And the answer to that question is no, as a matter of fact, you can't. Ted Koppel of ABC News uh, saying that uh, when China was closed the last time, the most accurate accounts of what was going on inside the country came from what he called the wave of refugees coming out of the country. Uh, is there anything like that now that you can tap? Well, there there are lots of people at leaving China now. I mean, one of the differences between the, the China today and China during the sort of heyday of the Hong Kong-based China watchers in the 50s and 60s is that it's much more internationally engaged. So you will run into Chinese. They're not all refugees by, by any stretch of the imagination. There are business people. There are students who go to African countries. There are hundreds of thousands of Chinese living and working there in Southeast Asia. Um, even here in Taiwan, you run into people from mainland China. So there is a large pool of people outside China that are, in theory, uh, a, a resource that can can be tapped. There are refugees. Look at the issues of Chinese trying to cross, going to Ecuador and then trying to make their way up through South and Central America uh, to the United States. What Koppel was talking about specifically was uh, in 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 the six in the fifties and sixties. Uh, people often would sometimes try and swim from across from from across the border from Hong Kong to go into Hong Kong or Macau, the, the former Portuguese, the then Portuguese colony, uh, and that was at a time, particularly like in the early '60s, when China was uh, suffering through Chairman Mao's Great Leap Forward, which produced a famine where 40 million people starved to death. Uh, and then the Cultural Revolution, all the turmoil and violence. So people who were fleeing that became important sources. Today, those kinds of refugees, as I say, you have the economic migrants, but then you also have, for example, a story like the oppression of the Uyghur Muslim minority in the northwestern province of Xinjiang, and very important source uh, for reporters who've uh, uncovered the scale of that repression has been Uyghur refugees, the Uyghurs the who have made their way out of Xinjiang to other countries in Central Asia, or there's a large exile Uyghur community in, in Turkey, for example. Uh, and many of the reporters, there are two chapters in uh, Simon China in which the journalists who sort of did the first investigative reporting about the scale of the repression targeting the Uyghurs and uh, quite a number of them uh, ended up going to Turkey and talking to exiled Uyghurs and then taking information, in some cases, contacts, names, addresses from people they got there and then going to Xinjiang themselves and having to sort of play a cloak and dagger game with the authorities, getting arriving at four o'clock in the morning, uh, evading police checkpoints to make their way to actually speak with people who they had heard about from Uyghur exiles who, who could give them information about detentions and incarceration and, and, and so on. Um, but China is much more internationally engaged. And so some of the, one of the important tools now uh, is to, to study the way sort of Chinese are doing business around the world, Chinese investments, so on. Xi Jinping has this policy called the Belt and Road, which is this giant sort of economic engagement policy to build infrastructure, particularly in the developing world. So there are Chinese companies all over Asia and Africa and Latin America building 
uh, roads and dams and factories and so on. Uh, and that's an important resource. So you can still do a lot outside China. It's just inside China is so much more constrained now. David, what was it like? Something, something that explains the day-to-day -day life and challenges and joys of living in Beijing as a correspondent. You know, it was it was a real real mix. On the you know, on the one hand, uh, if you wanted to be an American who only drank your coffee at Starbucks and ate lunch at Subway and and went to dinner at Pizza Hut, you could have that experience. God help you. Uh, or if you really wanted to, you know, get into things with China, I used to say that you know, I what I enjoyed the most was being out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, in some village that most Chinese people had never heard of and find some little hole in the wall place that would literally just have a plastic table and a couple of plastic chairs outside of it. Uh, I remember in Chongqing, as a matter of fact, one time we were doing a story on the Three Gorges Dam, which was a big controversy at the time. And a buddy of mine who now writes for The Economist and I flew in with our assistants and Immediately, uh, we were going to take a boat down the river the next day. And so first we did what all good foreign correspondents do, which is make sure we ate well. And we went down to a little hole in the wall right along the river. And the four of us ate more food than you could possibly imagine and washed it down with plenty of beer. And the tab for the four of us a few hours later was $16. Um, and, you know, we went from there on the boat the next day all the way down the river stopping at, at places that were villages and towns, in fact, of good size that were being destroyed to make way for the reservoir that was going to come. And it was it was always just, you know, a, a tremendous, you, you felt like you were fortunate to, to get a glimpse of this place at this time, that you were really, you know, journalism is always kind of a, a, a front row to history, but I think never more so than when you're watching a society of that import go through what it was going through, what it continues to go through today. One of, one of my favorite anecdotes, uh, uh, I, I mentioned I, I went to China for the first time in 1973. And 20 years later, as CNN's Beijing bureau chief, I decided it would be very interesting to try to retrace the trip. And the, 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 the nature of the sort of controls in Chinese society are such that once I was able to track down the two guides who had escorted my group around, they were able to find a lot of the same people that, and, and arrange for permission to go to some of the same places. So in 1973, my most memorable event was a lunch at a people's commune with this farmer. Uh, it was this lavish spread. It was one of the sort of best moments of kind of human contact in a very controlled trip. So I tracked this guy down 20 years later and his story was, I thought, so representative of how China has and has not changed. He had uh, he had set up. He was living in a new apartment. He had a television, color television set. He was running a tractor repair factory with his son. He was clearly a beneficiary of the market style reforms that uh, were transforming China at the time. But he also told me that in 1973, when my student group had arrived that and he had said how great their life was and we had this wonderful meal he said that the meal had been trucked in the day before by local officials 
just to impress the foreigners. She said, everything you saw was fake. In fact, we our, our living conditions were terrible. We ate lucky to eat meat once a month. We were normally subsisting on rice gruel, but they laid this spread on to impress you. So to me, that was a, a sort of wake up moment because it, it makes you realize how hard it is to get to the truth. But at the same time, this guy's own personal experience, I saw what exemplified the ways in which China was changing for the better. Mike, you uh, interviewed more than 100 journalists uh, who covered China. You must have had some surprises in some of those interviews. Well, what I, part of what was interesting to, to, to me was, was just to, the, 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 the numerous examples of the resourcefulness with which uh, reporters uh, uh, tried to approach the, the China story. So two quick examples. Uh, I interviewed Morley Safer, who the, the great CBS News correspondent who, who most people remember as a host for 60 Minutes. But in the 1960s, he was a foreign correspondent. And he got into China in 1967 at the height of the Cultural Revolution because he had a Canadian passport. And he put down as his occupation, I don't remember what it was, an architect or some, something that was not to do with journalism. And his cameraman, who was a British passport holder, said he was a travel agent. And they went to China for a month and they produced this remarkable film called Morley Safer's Red China Diary, which is the only sort of documentary that appeared on American television shot by an American television team about the Cultural Revolution. And they were there at the height of the Cultural Revolution. And he at one point was put on trial by the Red Guards because they overheard him making a disparaging comment about a tractor. So uh, I, the way he, and, and then another interesting example um, in the late 90s there and early 2000s, there was a terrible HIV AIDS epidemic in Henan province in central China, which was the result of peasants selling their blood to make a little bit of extra cash. And the people who were running this blood uh, selling operation, who were known as bloodheads. Uh, we're not using sanitary methods to handle the needles and so on. So hundreds of thousands of sort of salt of the earth Chinese peasants got AIDS. And a couple of journalists, including Elizabeth Rosenthal, the New York Times, who was a medical doctor who covered the early stages of the AIDS epidemic in New York, um, they worked with a Chinese gynecologist who helped smuggle them into these AIDS villages in the middle of the night, literally on the, in the back of a truck with a blanket over them to avoid detection. When they then interviewed these people and they thought they don't want, they're not gonna wanna be interviewed, but these people were in such desperate shape, they were eager to have their story come out. So I thought both of those were just examples of, of the kind of the cunning and the re resourcefulness that the journalists that I interviewed for my book assignment, China, uh, had to display to get beyond the barriers that the Chinese Communist Party uh, has always erected, which are higher and more challenging now, to get closer to the reality of the country, both good and bad. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. We'll see you next week. And I have a, you know, an inclination now to go out and get a good Chinese meal. Cheers. Podcast listeners, if you'd like to receive my weekly column, send me an email, llewellynking1 at gmail.com.